Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Matt Germino, a rangeland scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey out of Boise, Idaho. Matt has been studying rangelands for a while now with a focus on restoring sagebrush rangelands following fire, especially repeated fire on landscapes that are dominated by invasive annual grass. Uh, Matt and I met recently at the Society for Ecological Restoration's International Conference in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, For those who might still be undecided about whether to listen to this episode based on the title, we're going to be talking about factors involved in bunchgrass competition with cheatgrass and other invasive annual grasses, and then talk about research that has been completed but is not yet published uh, regarding the cheatgrass-fighting bacteria uh, that have been in the news off and on, Pseudomonas fluorescens. One of the requirements of good science over the long haul is replication, not just replication within an experiment, but multiple researchers repeating the experiments that others did in order to test them. And a team that Matt's been part of has done just that with this bacteria, and you'll want to hear about it. Matt, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tip. Thanks for having me. I know you've been in in Idaho for a while, but tell us about your pathway to becoming a federal range scientist in the Great Basin. How did you get there? Well, I actually am originally from the East Coast, from Massachusetts, but I was interested in uh, plant community and physiological ecology of of wildland plants. And that brought me out to the University of Wyoming in the early to mid-1990s. I did a PhD there on the topic and then took a postdoc position at Montana State University where I began working in rangelands and then uh, quickly was hired by Idaho State University um, onto their biology faculty to focus on uh, teaching and research in this area. And I did that for about 10 years. And during those 10 years, the Eastern Snake River Plain erupted with large wildfires that were really unprecedented. And at the same time, we're seeing large increases in exotic annual grass invasions and other uh, problems associated with fire. And I became more and more interested in applying what we were learning from our research on the basic ecology of these um, semi-arid rangeland ecosystems. And then in 2011, a position opened with the U.S. Geological Survey. The USGS is the science arm for the Department of Interior. And the scientists in the USGS that focus on ecosystems, forest or rangelands, um, have a really great situation where they're able to do their science closely in, in conjunction with land managers. <clears throat> and that to me was really important. It uh, gave me a window to see how my research could be most directly used. And it's offered a, a pipeline to translate our, our science into actionable um, land management. Yeah, I love that. That seems like one of the themes of, of some of your work. The listeners who are uh, what I call range nerds may be aware of the regular feature in the Society for Range Management's uh, Rangelands Journal called Browsing the Literature. Uh, Jeff Mosley from Montana State did that for a number of years, and you recently took that over. Uh, I really think this is a useful feature. Uh, do you do that column uh, because you owe a personal debt to Jason Carl or because you think real people who make a living off of rangelands should know about current science? I apologize if I answered that for you. I meant to give you something besides a yes or no question. I say Jason Carl owes me one for doing a column. <laughs> <laughs> here, here. Um, I agree. But my motivation was first that it um, forces me to read the, the most current literature. So for that column, 
I only review literature that has yet to be published. So I dig into all of the online first or just accepted articles. And, and because I'm not doing that column just for myself, it forces me to think about uh, many different areas of range ecology and management. And so it helps me um, broaden my knowledge base. And also very importantly, it gives me a chance to, to translate and digest the scientific literature for land managers so that they can go to the, this column and in five or 10 minutes, they can get a pretty good idea of what, what's, what's coming down the pipeline for science. Um, and the idea is that they can quickly see whether or not there's any um, research that's very relevant to their needs, and then they can uh, find the articles that I've cited and, um, and you know, delve further into them if needed. I think that's great. One of the one of the assumptions, or I guess guiding ideas behind the podcast, is that anybody who's involved in actually managing rangelands needs to pull from a, a wide range of subject matters and expertise and topics in order to do a good job at it. Um, one literary scholar said one time that people should read promiscuously, and I <clears throat> I think. Trying to understand a, a wide variety of range science is, is pretty critical. Well, let's jump into uh, some of the research that, that you've been involved in recently. Uh, you know, re reducing invasive annual grass dominance on rangeland is a pretty big goal and a, and a pretty big deal. Not just a big goal in terms of the scale of the problem, but uh, I guess a, an audacious goal in terms of the apparent difficulty of the problem. Uh, most people would rather not think about the amount of public money that we've spent on chasing that problem, but it feels like the scientific conversation has shifted a bit toward more of a systems approach to solving the problem. In other words, not a, a you know a, a narrow focus on on whether plateau herbicide is the silver bullet, but on how we can manage whole ecosystems and try to understand all of the different interactions in a way that promotes desirable perennials, discourages the things we don't want, like exotic invasive annual grass. Uh, it, it's got to be economically feasible for it to be actually implemented on a large scale and gets, gets long-term results. And I really think rangeland health is not so dissimilar to human health. We have to keep all the body systems functioning you know, at, at high vigor because they're all connected. And I really think wild ecosystems are quite a bit like that. What, what are your thoughts on on what I feel like is a, a good shift away from narrowly defined questions and answers, which is how you do good science, but putting all that together into a larger understanding of ecological relationships that are interrelated? I agree. So things have really moved away from this idea that um, number one, we're going to completely get cheatgrass out of our landscapes. Um, I don't think mm. actually many people um, thought that was going to happen, but more importantly, managers are realizing that um, species like cheatgrass are here to stay. And if all we do is focus on cheatgrass, we're probably going to get stuck with even worse invaders. And by the way, those new invaders like Medusa head and more recently Ventimata are indeed a lot more noxious yeah. and a lot more problematic. And so um, <clears throat> we can focus more on thinking about what, what, what are our objectives for the landscapes. And I'm really pleased at how people are um, collectively thinking about um, the values that we have for these ecosystems, like ecosystem services, like what does it really take to get sustainable rangelands, um, wildlife needs, um, what exactly do the wildlife needs, um, soil stability, um, ecosystem processes like, um, like carbon sequestration and moderation of <clears throat> hydrologic cycles, preventing erosion, etc. Mm -hmm. So that whole ecosystem approach, I think, is indeed um, important. And along the same lines, 
um, we're unlikely to have any tools, singular tools, um, become available that are magic bullet. Just like you're not going to cure cancer yeah. by covering up the symptoms with painkillers. Um, right. really got you know, the human medical system is, has been, um, even though it's never good enough for us, we have to acknowledge that we've had a lot of success. Doctors treat, treat sick patients, just like land managers treat patches of land. And doctors in the medical profession um, have a good knowledge base available to them from um, PhD MDs, like a medical research. And those doctors are able to link the symptoms um, of their patients to underlying um, uh, mechanisms and prescribe treatments that both address the symptoms, but more importantly, get at the root causes of the illness. And usually the prescriptions are things like, number one, um, let's boost the immunity of the, of the patient or the patch of land um, by giving it rest where rest is needed and um, making sure that the, 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 the person or the ecosystem is um, as healthy as possible and thus able to have immunity against um, disease. And so the analogy for the disease would be um, this invasion by exotic species that <clears throat> create very undesirable um, ecosystem conditions. So are we likely to have a chemical or something like that that's going to solve all our problems? It seems very unlikely to me. However, chemicals can be a very effective part of um, and, like what we might call an integrated pest management approach. Um, but that really has to be the focus. We've got to think about um, both the causes and the the symptoms of the problems that we're dealing with. The symptom is the invasion. The cause of the invasion um, likely involves depletion of um, desirable native species that might compete with the exotics. And the, the demise could be due to a, a suite of things, climate, um, some grazing practices, um, his, you know, historic disturbances. Yeah, a couple of ecological terms that I think start to get at these ideas of of health are resilience and resistance. That you know, the, the terms have been thrown around a lot in the last ten years ago. Kind of like sustainability, you know, you start to lose meaning. But there are some pretty specific meanings for both resilience and resistance that I think are are key here. Can you uh, define both of those? Yeah, so um, Dr. Gene Chambers, Dave Pike, and many other researchers um, have um, compared and contrast the factors that lead to invasion and recovery after wildfire and centered on this concept, these concepts of, um, that relate to the stability of ecosystems and plant communities. So resistance, when we talk about resistance, we're thinking about um, the ability of the, the ecosystem of the plant community to keep its composition. And mo most specifically, we refer to resistance to invasion by exotic annual grasses. And resilience refers to the ability of the um, ecosystem or the, the plant community to rebound and recover after a disturbance, such as wildfire. And the two are interrelated. Resilient ecosystems oftentimes have, are, are, we oftentimes have um, better resistance to invasion. So in an analogy to a human immune system, resistance would be a strong immune system that doesn't get sick in the first place. Resilience would be the ability of a person or a body to, to recover quickly and rapidly fight off a disease once it's Taken, yes, right? that's a pretty good analogy. Resilience would refer to the overall health of, of the human, their ability to bounce back after any kind of um, injury or or, um, or sickness. And yeah, resistance is the ability to um, prevent any kind of invasion by bacteria or viruses. 
the in the paper that uh, that you sent me that's about to come out uh, in Rangeland Ecology and Management, the one titled Bunch Grassroot Abundances and the Relationship to Resistance and Resilience of Burn Shrub Step Landscape, you say that perennial grasses are the some of the key providers of both resilience and resistance in the landscape. What are some of the actual ecological mechanisms involved in grasses providing okay, resilience? Great question. That paper actually, I think, is now in print um, and available. Yeah, listeners. Um, and if they can't get a copy of it, they can always email me and I can send them a PDF. Um, okay. So, how is it that these perennial grasses provide resistance and resilience? I think a key part of it um, is below ground. Um, in order to be resilient, these perennials have to have the ability to re-sprout. So number one, they've got to have buds, um, meristems. Um, they're usually right at the soil surface. They're usually below the soil, just below the skin of the soil. Um, but more than that, they need to have roots that um, can feed the, the, you know, the water and the nutrients to the re-sprouting buds. Resistance, I think, is largely a function of lateral root abundances um, in the bunch grasses. So bunch grasses, um, obviously, they're, they're bunchy. Um, that means that they're normally surrounded by bare soil or maybe soil that's covered with uh, cryptogamic or biological crusts. But generally, um, bunch grasses um, need to have Areas around them where their perennial where their, um, their roots um, can provide um, more water and nutrients. Bunch grasses tend to be a little bit taller in stature, and um, they're not super deep rooted in the sense of sagebrush, and so they do need to draw some of their resources from the areas around them, and. Perennial bunch grass roots um, by by taking up water and nitrogen preempt or take away or or, um, or suck up the water and nitrogen that invaders like cheatgrass really need. Cheatgrass tends to more readily invade um, areas that have very large uh, gaps between perennial plants, perennial bunch grasses especially. And in those very large gaps, there tends to be fewer plenty of bunch grass roots and therefore more water and nitrogen available to the invaders. That's our theory. That's interesting. The the idea of lateral root abundance being critical rather than root depth is interesting because I think most people would associate root depth with the ability of the plant to access water. Uh, during periods of time when plants that are shallow rooted maybe can't and therefore they have a competitive advantage uh, but i can see that maybe both are implicated are, are both width, width or lateral length abundance and depth important they or is are it more the for lateral? sure um but i think that the perennial bunch grass roots um I mean, I think that they are, they're generally getting the depth that they need pretty quickly. So on the Soda wildfire on the Oregon-Idaho border, it burned in 2015, uh, my field technicians yep. and I went out and um, dug up the roots for about 500, almost 500 bunch grass plants and uh, cheatgrass or others out of being those growing near the bunch grasses. And even for the relatively new, young uh, seedlings of the bunch grasses in drill seeded areas, the bunch grass roots were um, almost always deeper than the annual grasses. Um, <clears throat> so there's two things to think about. One is if, if the perennial bunch grass roots are too shallow, for sure we would not expect survival, and therefore we expect, expect very little resilience. Uh, from the bunch grasses, but I think, given enough time, the young bunch grasses can indeed establish the deeper roots. And yes, that is important for extending their growing season every year and um, providing the, the water 
<clears throat> that's needed to have a good seed crop and um, create tall bunch grasses that both provide forage but also are critical for wildlife, such as uh, sagegrass, for example, need to hide amongst the tall sage uh, um, bunch grasses. So deep, deep roots are for sure important too. So what kind of stressors then take grasses out? If those are the factors that, that cause grasses to be um, competitive and stabilizing for, for an ecosystem, uh, you know, grasses are not bomb-proof. What, what, what will take them out or cause them to be weak and therefore less competitive? Most of the bunch grasses um, are pretty good at recovering after wildfire. Some exceptions can be um, apparently Idaho fescue is um, a little less apt to recover um, compared to other bunch grasses. It tends to be factors mm -hmm. such as um, some grazing uh, strategies or regimes. Uh, cows obviously like mm -hmm. bunch grasses. They're a lot more palatable than our um, other species like sagebrushes or um, or exotic annual grasses. So like extended spring grazing, for example, can, um, or high stocking rates can sometimes lead to a, a, a depletion of the perennial bunch grasses. Um, and that's especially true when you combine um, drought stresses. Like if you get a several years of dry springs um, combined with inappropriate grazing, um, you can lose your perennial bunch grasses and render uh, an ecosystem um, right. unresilient and not resistant to invasion. The stressors compound each other. I think with regard to Idaho fescue, I had read some research out of maybe the PNW experiment station that uh, grasses like Idaho fescue that have a higher stem and leaf density down by the soil surface are more prone to generate enough heat to kill the meristematic tissue in the crown when they burn and therefore are more susceptible to you know mortality yeah when they get, i, I when they get think burned. that can happen another thing that can happen is um some types of grazing regimes will deplete the bunch grasses from areas away from sagebrush so that you end up having the, bunch, the residual bunch grasses surviving um, close to, or sometimes even underneath sagebrush or other shrub crowns. And then when the fire happens, obviously the heat is greatest um, with the wood and, and the high full, uh, leaf area of the, of the shrubs. Um, and that causes more mortality right. of the bunch grasses. What are what are some measurements, methods that have been historically used or maybe are currently being used to, to gauge bunchgrass health? How do we measure? That seems like a, a pretty um, difficult thing to get at. Yeah, that's how, a how can we really measure bunchgrass critical health? question. And I want to extend your question a little bit further. Um, I'm told by mm -hmm. the uh, range, rangeland conservationists and the people who do post-fire rehabilitation for the BLM, that they really need metrics of bunch grass maturity to help guide post-fire raising resumption decisions. Usually there's a couple of years of, of rest after um, fire. Um, but then the question is, when are those bunch grasses ready to withstand grazing resumption um, without compromising the health of the bunch grass stand in the long run. Um, and right. unfortunately, we don't have a lot of um, scientifically uh, uh, supported uh, metrics for bunch grass health. We think that it's likely to involve things like um, the diameter of bunch grasses at the ground. That's called basal area. Um, so to measure that, you simply um, pull up the foliage from the bunch grass um, with calipers or maybe just a, a regular ruler. You just measure the diameter of, um, of the 
uh, stem to soil connections of the bunch grass. And it's usually on the order of like an inch or two for an established plant, a young plant to sometimes um, can be 10 inches or 15 inches for some uh, taller, bigger bunch grasses. Also, though, um, so and that'll tell you um, how established um, the plant is. Obviously, a bigger diameter is going to indicate an older plant. Um, presumably, a plant that's less likely to die uh, during a drought cycle. Um, you can also look at whether or not the plants are having good seed crops. Um, that's a pretty good indicator of the, the health of the population of bunch grasses. Um, height, I, I'm, I'm not sure that height is a great indicator um, in general because height varies so much from year to year as a function of weather. However, for young seedlings, we did find that height um, does correlate with um, how much root they have and whether or not the plant is likely to get tugged out of the ground by um, by cows. Um, we didn't actually directly measure that. We <clears throat> simulated the tugging effect of, of um, cows by tugging with our hands. So unfortunately, we don't have <clears throat> a scientifically bonafide um, prescription for what could be measured to reliably know um, bunch grass health. But these are some variables that we are looking at now and we're correlating those variables to direct measurements of the resistance and resilience of bunch grass stands. Yeah, let's talk about this research that, that you've just published because it sounds like that may be leading us toward tweaking some of those methods. Um, you know, most people are aware that when when you do research, it starts with a, a clean question or a set of questions or, or maybe a statement of expected results. And so you've got you listed five predictions uh, that you were testing with this particular uh, research project. Are those predictions things that that you believed would be true, or were they just statements of a hypothesis that you were going to test? So, or maybe um, both? I think of hypotheses as statements of um, how nature works. Um, so we might hypothesize that roots root abundance um, and the activity of roots of bunch grasses is the mechanism underlying resistance and resilience. And um, no one project can definitively answer that question, but a given experiment could test some predictions that are consistent with that hypothesis. And so the five statements that I've made yep. are actually predictions. Um, there were things like, well, we predicted that um, in, in a resistant resilient area that roots of the bunch grasses would be deeper than annual grassroots. And of course, if they're not, then you know that those mm -hmm. bunch grasses probably have a low likelihood of surviving. Um, the second thing was we predicted that the lateral root abundances of the bunch grasses would, um, that they would vary with factors that we think normally affect the health of bunch grasses and the resistance and resilience they confer. Um, those would be things like slope, aspect, and elevation. As you go up in elevation, um, you, know, you think that bunch grasses generally are more vigorous and that their, their sites, their stands are more resistant to the um, We also <clears throat> predicted that um, exotic animal grasses like cheatgrass would be less abundant where the perennial bunch grasses have more of those lateral roots. Um, and we also predicted along with us that the, the um, gap, like the bare soil gaps between the perennial bunch grasses would be smaller um, where those exotic manure grasses were less abundant. So those were kind of our science things. And then we, we wanted to kind of extend these questions to things that are more readily, readily usable by land managers. And so we also 
ask if the lateral root abundances of, of the bunch grasses could be related to things like basal dynamic, which you can measure pretty quickly and easily. Lateral root, like roots are so hard to measure. That's why we have very right. little data on them. Even though they're so important in rangelands and semi-arid rangelands, there's hardly any studies on roots. And in the future, there probably won't be many either. Um, so we, we, the key thing is, what can we measure above ground to get a good indication of what's happening below ground for roots? Basal diameter. And basal diameter, just to interrupt you, basal diameter is one of the things that we have measured in bunch grasses to try to get at their vigor, assuming that that's a good proxy for that's root right. Absolutely. Uh, so occupation, there are, right? There are some data, some, some agencies monitor it, but not all. Um, and if we find that those yeah. diameters do relate to roots, then it would make a case for putting more effort into measuring basal diameters and monitoring um, how basal diameters change. Um, right. Well, <laughs> so what did you um, find? We did find that, unsurprisingly, perhaps <laughs> the roots of the bunch grasses were. Um, in all but like a couple of plants that were deeper than you know, grass roots. It's not too surprising because, um, you know, we were just measuring these bunch grasses on a natural landscape that had been burnt. And I think that any bunch grass that had roots that were shallower than those very shallow cheatgrass or medusa had roots, that bunch grass probably wouldn't survive and wouldn't have been there for us to measure. Uh, but even still, this, this the deeper rooting of the bunch of grasses was evident even in the seedlings of the grasses that came up from drill seeding, the bunch of grasses that were drill seeding. So, um, <clears throat> so okay, that's mm -hmm. pretty good insight. We expected to we observed what we expected to see. Um, lateral root abundances um, they did you know they did vary with um, landscape. Um, Features um, they definitely you know um, they definitely vary. The most importantly, though, um, we were kind of surprised that we, the expectation that cheatgrass and medusa had would be less abundant, or lateral roots were more abundant. Well, we actually didn't observe that. There was no evidence for that effect. However, there was. Hmm. The annual grasses were more abundant in areas that had large um, basal gaps, like large um, uh, bare soil gaps between the perennials. And um, the perennial bunch grass roots were also scarcer in those large gaps. So it's almost like we've got, we do have an indirect relationship between the perennial bunch grass roots the bare soil gaps and cheatgrass abundances. And the importance of this is that it tells us that um, those bare soil gaps are probably pretty important to focus on for monitoring. They're probably a pretty good thing to tune into mm -hmm. when you're trying to quickly assess resistance and resilience of a site. And there's other research um, by my colleagues that, that has pointed to this in, in the past in previous publications. Um, Dave Pike and, and uh, his colleagues um, have focused on this a lot. And here we're providing a, um, a below ground root based uh, bit of evidence for the importance of basal gaps. This was a surprise to me. I actually did not, I always thought of gaps, canopy gaps as being important to the vigor of the bunch grasses next to them. Um, and I figured that a tall bunch grass would have a lot of roots and there's um, bare soil gaps and that that would um, make it hard for the cheatgrass to invade. Um, obviously, I wouldn't expect that in very large gaps, but I was kind of surprised that a gap, our data show that a basal gap, bare soil gap, larger than 60 centimeter diameter. So what is that in feet? That's about um, 
uh, so a foot is, is about 30 centimeters, so it's about a two-foot diameter gap is where <clears throat> anything larger than that, mm -hmm. um, you are at much greater risk of having annual grasses come in because your bunch grass roots are going to start to get real scarce. Is there any difference between canopy gap and basal gap in terms of the effectiveness of measurement, or did you just test one of those? Um, we didn't measure canopy gaps. So canopy gap refers to like you know the leaves of the bunch grass kind of um, like a lot of them they kind of spread outward. So the canopy is the canopy area is much larger larger than the basal um, diameter or basal area. Mm -hmm. um, I think we only measured the basal gaps, and the reason is is that canopy gaps are so variable from year to year. They're a little right. harder to target than the monitoring. And in terms of monitoring, they would also be highly dependent on the timing of measurement relative to grazing. You know, if you're if you graze in June and you're measuring it in July, you're going to be missing some canopy probably. Absolutely. Yeah, whereas basal, dia I'm sorry, basal diameter does not change much. Yeah. It's, it's either going to steadily increase or the plant will begin to die back. And if you've got a plant community with more than, say, 16 inches annual precip, oftentimes there's not much of a canopy gap, but you may still have basal gaps that can be measured. Yeah, that's right. A lot of times the canopies are overlapping one another. And, um, very difficult to study. Plus, um, these are pretty windy environments, and if you try to make precise measurements of canopy area, um, sometimes it's a little bit trickier because things are kind of blowing around in the wind. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've tried that before. Yeah, whereas basal diameter is really easy. Basal diameter is also, one thing I like about it is it's also really um, easy to monitor um, aerially after fire. Yeah. Um, so you get these green rings for the first little bits of regreening after fire, where the, um, the basal diameter and the basal area is, is really evident. Um, and that can be useful information when you're planning a fire response. Um, Post-fire conditions obviously are really pivotal for managing um, and dealing with the relative abundances of the desirable bunch grasses and the undesirable so is that is the is the basal gap the size of the basal gap uh, a a passive feature of the landscape that's based on precipitation soil type plant variety or is it something that could be manipulated so say you've got you know a <clears throat> shrub step at a thousand feet elevation that has large basal gaps is there a way for management to decrease the basal gap or is that just something that you're stuck with and it's useful to know that can it be manipulated well yeah i do think it can be manipulated in, in, um, where you have drill seeded um, or aerial seeded um, the density of plants probably relates um, inversely or negatively to um, the basal diameters mm -hmm. um, you know over time, there's probably some natural thinning that occurs, um, but in the short run, like within five years after drill seeding, if you've seeded very densely, I think it's reasonable to predict or expect that the basal diameters uh, might be smaller. There's not a lot of research on that particular question, and you could use some more studies uh, to, you know, to see if this prediction actually went out. That was the method used on the soda fire. I've actually been on a couple of those seating locations in the inside the footprint of the soda fire, and the drill seating was spectacularly successful, at least in the place where we were. You know, you'd have a hillside that had not been seated and one that had been seated, and they were night and day uh, with, with very, very little cheatgrass present inside of the drill seated area. Yeah, there was some highly successful treatments for sure, and one of the factors that led to the success was um, the layering of herbicide treatments with the um, exotic annuals and deferring the uh, resumption of grazing um, after uh -huh. the treatments were implemented. So normally, 
grazing was deferred for two years after fire. In the case of soda, grazing was deferred for um, at least two growing seasons after the last treatment of seeding or herbicide that was applied. And by the way, um, your readers and your listeners might be interested to know that on the soda fire, we experimented with um, using herbicide first in the first year after fire and then waiting until year two to drill seed and then vice versa. And then on top of that, they um, used a range of different um, hand plantings and um, multiple seedings. And in some cases, they even did multiple herbicide treatments. And that um, layering of treatments, I think, is really critical for um, enabling land managers to come up with a successful uh, restoration or rehabilitation effort. Another thing we should we should probably talk about is um, it's likely, although perhaps not yet proven, that um, grazing practices, especially the timing of grazing resumption after fire, probably will affect basal diameter development. Um, there is some literature that gets at this, but we could always use more direct tests of these ideas to help us know exactly like um, what grazing intensity, what season of grazing, what species of bunch grasses, different site types, different elevations. We need data from all those different kinds of scenarios and settings in order to really understand these questions. Yeah, a couple of questions on that because this is a pretty big deal uh, in the livestock industry. You know, if you had 90% of your BLM ground burn up, uh, you know, having to wait three years before getting back onto it can be a, a an economic hardship and one of the things that uh, that that has been proposed is that grazing after seed shatter uh, likely doesn't have the same negative effect if, if that was done say year or two after a fire instead of waiting later what are your thoughts about grazing after seed shatter as opposed to uh, did, would that still have the same negative effect as grazing during the active growing season, which seems like it's pretty obvious that's a, a problem? Um, we have some preliminary um, studies on this effect of spring versus fall grazing um, after mm -hmm. the fire. Um, we don't have conclusive results yet on it. Uh, my expectation is that I'm predicting that the fall grazing will have less negative and less negative effects in the spring grazing uh, for reasons just right. mentioned. Um, and we're actually observing that um, some that there's some modifications of, of grazing permits that are happening, um, especially, you know, so some of these have happened um, after the soda fire, for example. And in many cases, um, strictly spring grazing is now being um, either shifted into the fall or sometimes put into rotations that can alternate like spring and fall. But the point is, is to alleviate um, some of the spring grazing, or early summer grazing, um, and shift it back in time you know, to protect, protect the seed output and then also um, there's other benefits too that um, may end up with um, greater productivity by allowing the bunch grasses to, to retain their foliage in the spring until they fully mature. Um, where, you know, in the fall, obviously, you're not um, grazing foliage that is going to be supporting um, much additional growth for that year. If you don't mind, let's talk about cheatgrass eating bacteria for a few minutes. I think this is a a really interesting situation. Uh, there's you know, in in the world of even conventional agriculture, there's been a dramatic increase in understanding in the role of bacteria and other uh, microorganisms in you know mediating soil processes that make nutrients available. So I think, I think good bacteria are superheroes, but maybe Pseudomonas flavescens isn't quite as omnipotent as we had hoped. Uh, so you've you've done some research in that. How what specifically spurred 
you and your colleagues to do some research on on this bacteria? Land managers were starting to use weed suppressive bacteria. They were investing pretty significantly into it. Um, that great. Expecting that it's a silver bullet. Expecting that it was going to be a silver bullet. Again, as you mentioned before, um, I generally think it's very unlikely we're ever going to have a silver bullet solution to, to um, getting rid of exotic animals. Um, right. And so we were observing that land managers were starting to use uh, weed suppressive bacteria. Um, and the, the idea is to spray low densities of the seeds of of, uh, of these um, dry uh, bacteria onto the landscape, and you dehydrate and you spray it on. Um, and the bacteria then grows um, in the first year or two and begins producing um, a chemical that is um, that inhibits uh, root growth in annual grass seedlings. Right. Um, so and there's, there's a lot of nuances with that whole strategy or expectation uh, for how the bacteria can be um, increased naturally in the soil on a site. But the, the, the main reason why we got into this is the managers um, were also not 100% sure whether or not um, this bacteria approach was going to work. And so they actually asked us to get involved uh, and start uh, conducting um, reproducible, well-replicated, um, dispersed experiments, testing the bacteria in ways that um, people would believe the results. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of studies now. Yeah, because some of that initial research by Ann Kennedy was published in 1991. That's been quite a while ago. You would think that that there would be a few other studies since then, you know, besides ones conducted by her that would have some results, but there hasn't been much? There, well, actually, just in the last, um, very recently, there, there has been. So Dr. Kennedy um, produced a peer-reviewed publication in 2018 that um, was the first paper showing the effects of one of the strains of the bacteria in rangeland soils. Um, and it um, showed her, she made the case that um, the bacteria was very highly effective um, in rangeland settings. Um, since then, um, a number of other researchers have um, tried to reproduce those results and, and they haven't been able to. Um, both right. with the particular strain that Dr. Kennedy used, as well as um, two other strains that are available. There are, um, there are papers that have been accepted and are in press in the Journal of Range, um, uh, Range and Ecology Management, and a special issue that's forthcoming. Um, all of those papers have negative results for the effectiveness of the bacteria. In other words, um, the bacteria were not affected in a wide range of different rangeland settings. It doesn't mean that the bacteria can't be effective. It just means that using the bacteria in the way that it was um, recommended and prescribed, um, nobody's been able to get the bacteria to work in rangeland settings. Yeah, that's interesting. One of those papers is is one of yours, do I understand? Yes, that's uh, several. One co-author on one, um, and two of the other studies were um, ones that I, I led or actually was the lead author. Okay, and yours included uh, experiments in with potted plants as well as field trials, is that right? We have not published. Yes, yes, that's correct. One of them did have um, potted plants. Um, we used the same bacteria that Dr. Kennedy used um, in a study led by the um, USDA Agricultural Research Service, um, the same organization that Dr. Kennedy is part of, but yeah. by a different researcher, um, Dr. Kurt Langhart up in Montana. And in that study, um, a number of uh, uh, an experiment. Um, 
where the bacteria were applied or were not applied was um, used in a number of different locations throughout the state of Montana. Additionally, the bacteria were tested in pots and also in petri dishes. Um, and we saw effects in the petri dishes, but not in the pots or in the field. Some of what I've heard anecdotally is that uh, the bacteria has some effect when soil incorporated into a cropping situation, uh, which is maybe what it was intended for. Possibly. Did you? Yeah, I mean, you got to think about um, soil microbes and soil fertility. Rangelands, the soils, semi-arid rangelands where exotic annual grasses are a problem, generally are pretty, the soils are pretty infertile and they do not have a very high abundance of um, organic matter or microbial biomass or fungi and bacteria to feed in general to feed the bacteria yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's they're relatively infertile they're extreme environments um, most of the landscapes mm -hmm. are categorized as steppe environments which means they get very hot in summer and very cold in, in the winter and the soil surfaces where most of the nutrients are and where we think most of the bacteria would be um, are pretty extreme environments for, for bacteria to grow in general. It doesn't mean that there right. are no bacteria. There are. It's just that the, the bacteria that are there are probably um, very locally adapted um, to right. particular site conditions. Uniquely suited to those conditions, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, fungi are relatively big players in these soil microbial communities. Fungi tend to be um, a little bit more adapted to dry soils. Um, and we know a lot more about how fungi affect these ecosystems than we do bacteria. We know bacteria are pretty important for converting um, organic into producing um, uh, nitrogen. Um, you know, play a role in the springtime for converting um, the forms of nitrogen into the, the nitrates or the ammonium that plants can take up. Um, in contrast with fungi, we know a lot about um, how there's five different species of fungi that are major pathogens on, roots, on, on um, exotic annual grasses, um, black mm. fingers of death, um, head smuts, um, they're, they're pretty common, and many of your listeners have probably actually seen these fungi on zoophytes grasses. We haven't been able to figure out how, how to <clears throat> leverage those fungi in restoring these landscapes. Uh, and, but the point is that we know we don't know so much about um, bacteria, especially in soils in these these ecosystems, and the ecosystems are probably pretty harsh places to try to grow certain strains of, of, of bacteria. Well, if you don't mind, could you summarize what we think we know right now, and by we I mean the scientific and management community, about trying to slow down invasive annual grass, both treating it and preventing it from coming in in the first place? So. Um, well, number one, deciding whether or not to intervene is a key question. Cheatgrass can reside as a subdominant or non-dominant part of um, many different kinds of plant communities. Um, that does not include like low elevation sagebrush step um, communities, by the way, um, which is where most of our problems lie. Um, so number one, deciding whether or not to act, because sometimes our actions are disturbances to the plant communities themselves, and the actions, the seeding of herbicides or whatever we do, sometimes um, may not actually uh, improve things. It's possible they could, in some cases, make things worse. And then number two, um, getting on new inversions quickly. And when I say getting on them, I mean um, either alleviating the factors that are causing the invasions 
like if it's a particular livestock management practice or some kind of disturbance, or suppressing, trying to suppress the um, initial invasion with herbicides, or um, areas that, that haven't been invaded but are at risk because they have a um, depleted um, abundance or lack of abundance of, of desirable plenty of bunch grasses. Those might be places where um, seedings or plantings of the bunch grasses could be very effective. Um, generally speaking, for areas that are already, you know, that cheatgrass has already taken a foothold or um, is becoming a, a, a dominant, I believe that you really need to look at the, um, how grazing is used. Doesn't mean we should be eliminating grazing. I just, you know, we have opportunities to look at um, the timing and intensity of grazing. In some cases where animal grasses are really abundant, it may be possible to actually reduce their impacts on fire with prescribed grazing. It's not easy to do, and it takes a long-term commitment to, to use a tool like that. But there's probably some settings where um, where grazing, whether reduction of grazing or increasing grazing in very targeted ways might be beneficial. Um, it's pretty well recognized that if intervention is going to be going to involve seedings and herbicides, that you're more likely to see success if that intervention is more programmatic an approach rather than one-off project work. We've seen all too many treatments that have right. just been a singular herbicide effort or a singular seeding effort with no follow-up, oftentimes without much monitoring. It's not a recipe for success in these dry ecosystems where drought is common. Um, you know, every five years, you're likely to see a pretty good drought here, right? Um, so when managers are given the resources and the, um, the authority and the flexibility to have follow-up treatments or to have phased treatments that combine herbicides and seeds over periods of, let's say, five years, I think we're much more likely to see success. Um, the point is, you know, the, the biggest message is these efforts have really got to be all hands, all ends. Um, I was just on the phone yeah. and called with a manager of a national wildlife refuge who is treating a thousand acres, but right on the other side of the fence is much bigger acreage that um, has a lot of cheatgrass. And so a question for him is, can he work within his own silo of fish and wildlife lands to have a successful treatment? Or should we really be looking at um, potentially investing some of his resources onto the neighboring BLM and private lands? Um, that might, might be right. a worthwhile strategy to consider, to at least open a dialogue. Um, Very good. I think that's an excellent conclusion. Uh, does the USGS publish some of the PDFs of this research, or is the easiest thing for people to just email you if they're interested in getting a copy of some of the research? They can go to my website at the U.S. Geological Survey. I'm in the Forest and Rangeland Ecosystem Science Center. Okay. And if they just typed in my last name, Germino, and USGS into a web browser, they probably would, would um, go right to the to the website. And there, I believe that there's a little button they can click next to each publication that will go to our um, administration. And our administration can send on a PDF. If they just go on Google Scholar, um, your listeners should know that um, many PDFs are readily available um, on Google Scholar. Um, right. Very easy to find there. And they can also directly email me anytime. Okay. Uh, we'll post that website URL as well as your email address on the show notes that are in the description for the episode and they'll also be on the Art of Range website. Um, Matt, thank you for what you do and thank you for, for your time. 
I appreciate it, Tip. I really uh, like what you're doing here with this um, podcast. And uh, it was great to meet you in South Africa. What a great event that was. So enlightening. Um, and uh, then I uh, extend my myself to any of your listeners and yourself if there's follow-up questions. Very good. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Music